Welcome everyone, this is Coaching in Session. My name is Michael Reardon and I will be your mindset coach today. And today we're going to be talking to a love linguist, Paul Zolman. He's going to be helping us understand how to have a more loving mindset. In the beginning, we are going to talk about his life, his history, and I believe this is very important because it gets into the nitty gritty of the conversation later. If we didn't have this type of background, we truly wouldn't understand what type of person Paul was because he went through the hardship, he went through the struggle, and then he was able to come out and express it. Most people who become coaches or help people in the sense of healing and personal development have some healing that they have done themselves. It's almost like if you are a basketball coach, if you're a football coach, not saying that you have to have played basketball or football, but most likely you did. And so we use our past experiences to now live our current situation, our current moment, our current moment in time. And when we look at love, mindset, possibilities, all of that is going to be stemming from our actions, our feelings, like what's truly going on within us. And this is not so much to allow our feelings to run rampant, but to understand why we do the things that we do, to understand what type of feelings we like. For example, if I say tacos or pizza, which one? You might say you like pizza. I say great. And I say soda or water. You might say I like soda, right? So you choose soda. I might say ice cream or cake. And you might say I like ice cream. I can ask 100 people that and we might get 50-50, maybe skewed a little bit, 45, etc. Just because you like one or the other, it doesn't mean that you pick the wrong dessert or the wrong food or the wrong drink. You get to decide what you liked. And sometimes in life, we don't understand that there's aspects to things that we like. For example, if you have a love language of receiving gifts, if you don't receive a gift, do you not feel loved? Maybe you have a love language of touch. If you don't feel touched, can you feel love? What does that look like for you? Maybe you've gone through a lot of work and went on all the dating sites. Maybe you came to me, RevanConcepts.com. You got yourself some relationship coaching and you found someone who was exactly what you were looking for, fit all the boxes, but the love language was different. Do you think that's still a good relationship? Well, we're going to be talking about that today in this episode. We're going to be talking about the love languages with a love linguist, Paul Zoman. Welcome, Paul Zoman, to Coaching in Session. How are you doing today? Doing great, Michael. Thank you very much. Thanks for letting me on your show. Of course. Today, we're going to be having you on as a love language linguist, and that's going to be unique to Coaching in Session. I don't believe we had someone with that specific title before, so we're going to be learning something new. We're going to be learning about your work. And I'm going to let you kind of let everyone know what that means. And then we're going to kind of have a conversation on that. So tell the world who you are, what you do and how you help them. My name is Paul Zolman. I actually was um, would like to tell a little bit about the background of how this came to be, Michael, if I can take just a minute to do that. I was raised in a family of abuse and it seemed like a generational thing that was passed on. I know that my grandfather had some issues and, and he passed on those to his children, which my father was one of those children. He had 19 children. My grandfather did. And my father toned it down. He only had 11. I've toned it down a little bit more. I only had eight. So I only have eight children, Michael. Just through that, you want to improve from each generation and make the love languages work in your life. But I didn't learn that growing up. What I learned was it was more of a, it was stressful. My father's father, my grandfather passed away 
when he was just 10 years old. So my father was born in 1922. Grandfather passed away 1932. And so in that time frame, it's economic stress. It's the Great Depression. A lot of things going on. You feel the abandonment of the father and all those children left with that mother, 10 children with the mother that she was a school teacher. She was very kind. I remember her just absolutely loving children. So I, I don't know where the disconnect was, but my father just wasn't that loving, or he just had harsh punishment, or he was imbibed with alcohol, or all the above. Could have been that why he was abusive. One thing I, I remember about my father that was a, a truck driver, he was gone during the week. And on the weekends, he'd come home and date my mother every single Friday. I love that part about my father that he dated my mother and he respected women in that way. But the date was always the same. It was always at the Maverick Bar. It was always with alcohol. Because I'm number 10 of 11 children, I imagine my mother started at the top. When they got all the way down, my father's been annoyed, being annoyed, being annoyed, 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 and he's ready to blow. And so he's stacking all this up, ready to blow. And so I feel like I got a lot of the brunt of that. There was one time that I received a, a spanking that was so harsh that I remember being black and blue for about three weeks. It was just that kind of situation that I grew up in. So I had a lot of residual anger left over from that. And all my adult life, I've tried to, to overcome that residual anger and just tried this, a lot of different things. But one thing that I did try, I said, I don't want to be angry anymore. And just had that negative statement. And it took me a very long time to figure out those negative statements absolutely don't work. Not at all. At age 35, I realized that I was blaming my father for all the things relationship-wise, any awkwardness socially, anything like that that was going on in my life that I could blame my father. Found out that if I have someone to blame, I don't need to change. It's their fault. It's always their fault if I've got somebody to blame. And so that's kind of a false atonement, so to speak, that you don't have to do anything to change if you can blame someone. And I had that kind of attitude until 35. And I said, why am I blaming my father? At that point in time, he'd been dead, Michael, for seven years. And I thought, it's time for me to take responsibility for my own actions. 35 years old, I would hope that other people don't have that same lag or that same late bloomer type of attitude. But if they're going to do it, late blooming is better than not blooming at all, just trying to get over the anger. So what I did was I I really believe that part of that anger that I had, I was also had that same problem that I'd be annoyed. I'd be annoyed. I'd be stacking all these annoyances until I flashed with flash with anger. Just kind of came to a head and it um, kind of ruined those type of flashes eventually were part of what ruined my first marriage. After 23 years of, of being married and eight children, my wife decided she didn't want to be with us anymore. There were five children left in the home, and I, I became the custodial parent for those five children. Decided that on the weekends that my ex-wife would have the children, that I was going to go destination dating. I was trying to find love, but I was trying to find it in all the wrong spots. I was living in Charleston, South Carolina at the time. So I went to Daytona Beach. I went to Jacksonville, Florida. went to Atlanta. went to Kansas City, Nashville, New York City, Cabo San Lucas, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, Las Vegas. went to all these cities and had dates, just called it destination dating. And it was a great time, a great midlife crisis. I don't recommend it, but unless you want just to have fun. And that's all it was. It was fun. It was really not finding love. 
So after that, I settled in Phoenix, thinking that the woman that I met from Phoenix thought that there was something there that would grow. It didn't. In that situation, and my older sister calls me up and says that she has a neighbor that she wants to introduce to me. I said, um, I don't think so. And she's big sister. And she said, oh, come on. You got to do what big sister said. When you're number 10 in the family, you don't have any say, really, because they always had to say. And so when you get around family, it just kind of fits back in that pecking order. You only have that say. So I started corresponding. It was just email. I wasn't really trying that hard. Just email and then messenger. And I kind of liked what the writing of this lady. So we started going up there uh, seven hours away. Like I said, I did not want to do it. But seven hours away, and it um, just was destination date and didn't want to do it. But started getting to a relationship going. Then I ended up moving up to where my sister was at in southern Utah and started developing the relationship. We got to the point now it's time for big brother approval. So I take this woman into my brother's house, and my sister-in-law pulls her inside and said, the only emotion that the Zolman family learned growing up was anger. At first, I denied it, said, "Uh uh-uh. Then it made me mad. I thought, huh, she nailed it. And I, I thought at that moment that if there's any time that I could change that, then now was the time. I thought I'd read the color code, and then I started reading the five love languages. And I read the five love languages four or five times. I didn't get it. I liked the principles, but I didn't get the application. You mean, Michael, if I guess what your love language is and cater to that, we're going to be buddies? I'm a bad guesser. That's not going to be happening. Just not going to happen. And the second thing Dr. Chapman had was, well, if you take this survey, then you can find what your love language is. What do I do with that, Michael? What, am I supposed to advertise? Hello, Michael. I'm Gifts. What do you have for me today? That's really awkward. And that didn't work for me either. So I thought that when I was a kid, there was some good times that I remember as a family that we played games. I thought, what if I could make this a game? And so I contacted Dr. Chapman, asked him, are you licensing those icons that you have for the love languages? His attorney sent back a letter, said, no, there weren't doing that. And frankly, I was happy about that because they were dated. They were just back from 1992 when probably he printed the first book. I contacted an intellectual property attorney, a copyright attorney here in my town. He said that theory is not copyrightable. Application is. So I made my own icons and I made it into a game. And this is this is what it is. For listeners that aren't seeing it, I'm showing time there. There's service. It's on a dice. So the dice is about one inch by one inch. Those are the words. There's touch. And then there is gifts. So five love languages, six sides on the die. The sixth side is a hand with a question mark on it. So there's just two instructions, Michael. You roll the die every day. That's the love language you practice giving away all day that day. So the way you become a love language linguist is that over a 30-day period of rolling the die, you will have given away all five love languages so that you know them backwards and forwards. The best part about that, Michael, you're not expecting anything back when you're giving this away. So you're sending it out, just planting seeds, your Johnny Apple seed of love, not Johnny Appleseed of Apple, but your Johnny Loveseed, so to speak. So you're planting these seeds, sending it out. The best part about it is when it comes back your way, you can see it, even though it might not be your primary love language, as Dr. Chapman talks about, which most people send out their primary love language, and they expect that to come back. That's reciprocity, and that's a transaction. That's not real love. 
but you'll be able to see it, see people loving on you. Maybe it's not your primary love language, but you'll be able to recognize it. And I think that's a big gap that we have in the world today that people can't see when they're being loved on if it's not in their narrow lane of what they like, their primary love language. That's kind of mm-hmm. kind of a little bit about me. Yes, that was uh, a long, a long one, but we will do our best to dissect all of that. So let's begin where we started growing up, because many people have a similar upbringing like you, as much as I don't want it to be that they have an abusive father, maybe abusive parents, maybe in broken household, drugs, alcohol, and they have to navigate through that. How did you survive that? Was it something you ignored? Is it something that your siblings can help you through? Or was it just something that, you know, later on you had to fix? That's a good question, Michael. I appreciate that. I think for the most part, I've found out that if I kept myself busy with other activities, like I was in the choir and I was on the track team and I was on the wrestling team and those type of things that I could do outside the home, that I could stay away from that and almost be protected by those people that were entrusted with children that could protect you. And that's that really helped me a lot. So focusing on that helped a little bit. And then when I was 17 years old, I, I left home. I left home after my junior year of high school. And so that's kind of how you get out of that. In my circumstance, I was like Ghostbuster. Who are you going to call? There was really nobody to call at that time and nobody to report anything to. And I didn't know what I was supposed to report. I didn't know that other families were different. All I knew was my family. It was kind of a myoptic approach to understanding all about families. I just knew what was in the walls of our home. Was there ever a time you confronted your father or was it always like an avoidance? It was more of avoidance, but um, I remember 10 years old, I started laughing when he started spanking me. It's like it tickled or something broke there that it didn't hurt anymore. It was just hilarious. Why am I being spanked? And that doesn't hurt. Or maybe I got calluses, or I don't know. I don't know what the deal was, Michael. Ten years old, when I started laughing, he thought, "Well, this isn't working." So he figured something else out, and he just didn't know how to come back and or ever say he was sorry if he was ever sorry. There was a lag in in the punishment too that because he was a truck driver and gone all week, it was may have been something I did early in the week, and I'm punished for it on the weekends. Really, I despised the weekends. I did not look forward. To the weekends at all. In fact, right now I'm self-employed. I work in the weekends too. It is that kind of avoidance. And so you had your own set of children. Did you follow in your father's footsteps of disciplining them? I did, and I and unfortunately I did spank at times. I absolutely regret that. I think there were a lot better ways now, and and I understand a lot better ways now. And of course, it's hindsight's twenty twenty. Not so much as spanking. You know, like if they did something that needed immediate discipline, you gave them a spank, that's no. fine. I'm talking about like, you know, just coming in and just beating on them for no reason. Oh, no. No, I didn't do that. Did your father do that? I don't know that it was for no reason, but when he was imbibed with alcohol, it would seem like there would be no reason or you did not know what the reason was. Right. Yes and no. I didn't understand why I was getting beat like I was getting beat. Obviously, he had a he had a reason, but he wasn't sharing. There's a correlation to that because when we look at the history of how people grew up, their fathers, like your grandfather, he had a bunch of children, 
he would hit your father. And then so he learned that that was the discipline aspect, but he didn't like it. Maybe he didn't like his job. He was looking for a coping mechanism, alcohol, doing the best he could with, you know, the tools that he had been given. And then you grow into now an adult. You have your own family and you're doing your best with what you have. And we gradually keep getting better. We keep equipping ourselves with new mindsets, a more loving mindset, as you said, as you begin to look into it, where in the beginning, maybe your father didn't experience that love. So it was hard for him to maybe show you love and affection. And then for you, maybe something that you missed and you started to incorporate that into your parenthood or you being a parent. And so now what's going to happen with your children is that they're going to love even more. If we look at the flow of, you know, of everything, it should be that. And especially with what you're doing now, helping people love, have a more loving mindset, and then helping them understand that we don't have to be negative. We understand that there's a lot of negativity, but we can be positive. Now, there is a saying that it takes three positive for every one negative. Do you find that to be something that the world is struggling with right now? Absolutely. And I and that's the whole idea of the mindset change. That when I started doing rolling the die and focusing on loving people and focusing on loving in that particular way, whatever was on the die for that day, I found that I was looking for what's right about people. What can I love about those people? And I was so focused on those two things that I forgot all about what's wrong with that person and just trying to go that annoyance route and start being annoyed with what's wrong with that person. And I realized that's totally out of my lane. Whatever that person is doing is not not my call. It's their call. I don't have children at home anymore. And so if I'm ever annoyed, it's just it's somebody that's old enough to make their own choices and make their own call. I'm not their judge that way. And when I realized that, the realization was just to stay in your lane. And I think that families learn to move out of their own lane into other people's lane, and they don't have those boundaries. And that's another thing, Michael, I think that I didn't grow up with, was those boundaries of what lane's my lane. Hmm, That's an interesting aspect. What lane is your lane? So you had to learn that as you were driving, basically, or as you're progressing through life. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a notion of perception when it comes to children looking at their parents and parents looking at the life that they want to give their children. For example, you might have heard this saying, I want to give my children the life I never had. Yeah. The worst thing a parent can ever probably say to themselves, because what it does is it takes away your history, what you went through. And you basically say, I had such a rough life. I don't want to mimic this. So meaning you're broken. There's something wrong with you because what you had to experience made you who you are today. So that means truly there's an aspect in you that you cannot fully accept, right? That's the whole psychology of that saying. However, there is a notion of perception too. There's a story of a father. He would work a nine to five. He was a businessman and he would come home every night. He would drink and he would beat on his wife and he had two boys and the boys would see that the father would be on the mom every night. And so The boys would say, well, I guess this is what a man does. One boy grew up and he was the same as his father. He would work a nine to five, come home, beat his wife. And then there's another, or, you know, looking at the other side now, he was extremely successful. He would come home. He had a loving wife. 
He had a loving family. He loved them. He didn't have to hit them. He didn't pick up the bottle. And so it comes down to perception. And both men were asked, well, why'd you turn out this way? And both of them said the same exact thing, because I watched my father. One saw the father for what he was doing and mimicked that because they said, this is what a man does. And then the other boy said, that is what my father did. This is not the man who I want to be. Do you find that when we can become more loving, we can have a better sense of perception in the sense of being more positive? Absolutely. And and I like to compare it to a magnifying glass that whatever we're magnifying is going to grow. It's going to get bigger. So why would we magnify the faults or the weaknesses or the misgivings of another person? That's a boomerang that's going to come right back to us, and they're going to now look at our faults and our weaknesses. So the better way to do it is is to send out compliments, find out what's right about people, because there's a lot of good about everyone. Everybody has good in them. So let's focus on that and magnify that. And just kind of disregard what the media says because it's mostly negative, really mostly is negative about that. And just focus on what's right about the world. I always say that there's no bad children, but yeah, I was a teacher for many years. I taught special ed and sometimes the teachers will say, oh, they're bad kids, you know, like they're really rough and things along those lines. So they would give this notion of this child is bad. And so this child would mimic that like, oh, I'm, I'm bad or I'm in special ed, or I'm not smart. And so that was their identity that they gave themselves because other adults said this is what they were. But when I was a teacher and when I went in, I hear it, I ignore it, because I understand that there is no bad child. I'm almost even tempted to say that there are no bad adults. However, there can be adults that do bad things. I think everyone has good within them. And maybe at their mindset at that current time, they might be thinking they're doing some work that maybe is in line with their religion, maybe in line with a a belief or a notion that they were told or they grew up in. So they're doing what they feel is right. Do you believe that there are bad people in this world? I know we can find good in everyone, but are there truly bad people? I think there are truly bad people because they choose to be bad. They choose that just like, or they've been told they're the bad long enough that they believe that they're bad, and then they do bad things. And they choose that of themselves. But I think all of us have that innate ability to choose, really, regardless of even where we live, even if we lived in a communist country, even if we lived in other places of the world, there would be choices in front of us that would be good or bad. And we've everybody's got that choice. It's really not taken from them unless we volunteer to give that choice to someone else and someone's making choices for us that way. I think that there are people that make bad choices, but as far as bad people, I believe the phrase that said God didn't make any junk. Well, let's look at this aspect, right? Who or what defines what's bad or negative? Because I want to give an example, then I'm going to kind of let you take over. If I was a teacher and I was in the classroom and there was a kid who would always get out of the desk and they start dancing, they start moving. They're not interrupting anyone. They're a kinesthetic learner, but they're just moving. They're just grooving. Now I'm a teacher. I'm like, sit down, sit down, sit down. I'm just yelling. I'm just giving this kid like, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. You're being bad, right? That kid is not being bad. So who define and what defines bad and negative? I think that the difference between bad and the good would be if you're sending out things that uplift people, if you're sending out things that make their day, if you're sending out things that encourage that person to be a better person, those are good things. 
if you're sending out things that allow a person to degrade themselves or to do bad things or encourage them to do bad things, then I think that's where the line is. Which way does it go? Are you uplifting them or are you degrading them? Yeah. And then when we look at like a love language, for example, like gifts and stuff like that, there's an aspect also that alludes to it, tough love, right? So for example, I'm a coach. Sometimes people need tough love for me. And it's not so much of me berating them, degrading them. It's of, you know, coming from a place of wanting to uplift them. But sometimes their mindset might not be in line with receiving tough love. Should we be cognizant of of understanding what that person should be receiving? Tough love, sincere love, as you were talking about love languages, should I just give you gifts and stuff like that? Or is there an aspect of no matter what, if I feel like I'm coming from an uplifting position, I'm doing good? That's possible. And it's not really our choice that way, but but it's all about them. And it's about how they feel at the end of the day. So what I'm watching for, Michael, when I'm rolling the die is I'm watching for people that light up. When they light up, I'm taking a mental note that, oh, that's what they like. That might be their primary love language. And just wash, rinse, repeat, do that over and over again. And that's what you're looking for is you're looking to make people's day, to uplift them in that way. In that way, it's satisfying, it's gratifying if you can help somebody have a better day. Really makes your day too. But not only that, but when you make someone else's day, they're going to share that happiness with their circle of influence as well and make other people's day. The opposite happens with anger. You send out anger, you get an immediate return on your investment. They're going to be angry right back at you. And you made their day bad. And they're going to make everybody else miserable around them as well. I think we just need to keep sending it out, sending out the good and sending it out uplift and watch. Just use our observation skills to watch. You know, you've talked about uh, children. I'm thinking that in K through six grades, that this that rolling a die at the beginning of the day, just taking the two seconds to roll the die, the teacher takes 30, 30 seconds more to explain class we're watching for this this day. At the end of the day, then they can record. I've got a journal. They can record what they rolled, what opportunities they saw to love in that way, and what they did about those opportunities. And instead of like me at age 35, realizing that I'm accountable for my actions, we can teach these young children to be accountable for their own actions. And then you might not get that person dancing in the aisles, but it's okay to dance in the aisles as long as it doesn't disrupt others while they're trying to study or they're trying to they're trying to do their homework or whatever they're doing. It's okay for that to happen. And they're not bad for doing that. They just need to be calm for a minute and just be calm for it's time to be calm. There's a season for everything and just help them understand the season. So if they can understand the season for love and hand out that love all day long and report on it at the end of the day, I've found a lot of teachers that I've talked to that the last 10 to 15 minutes of every school day is really kind of non-productive time. The children have been there all day. They know the bell's going to ring. They're antsy. It's kind of non-productive time for teaching. But if it's for recording what they rolled that day, just take that 10 to 15 minutes and on a pass-fail basis, obviously, just a check mark whether they did it or not. I've got a, a franchisee of Yogurtland just close in my city where I live that actually will give for if the kids will write for 15 days of the month, they'll do it for 15 days and keep that journal for 15 days. 
they're going to get five ounces of yogurt for free. So there's a little incentive there. But if they'll do it for 25 days, if they'll step up and do it more often, try to make it a habit of watching for love opportunities all day long, then he'll give them 10 ounces of yogurt. And I think that in teaching children that way, responsibility is going to mitigate a lot of the things that I missed. I feel like I have holes in my childhood because of things I missed out on because I didn't take accountability early on. When we look at the aspect of what we do as coaches or just helping people, you help people find love, meaning, and I help people find purpose. I'm sure you also do that too. More so with what I do with my mindset coaching is helping people become more positive and how they think. Looking for that light up aspect too, like what type of joy do you have when you go to work, right? Maybe you have more joy helping out people in a soup kitchen than you do working a nine to five as an accountant. So we look at that, right? The things that light you up. And when you find someone's love language that lights them up, do you really say like, this is what you should be looking at? This is what you should be moving toward? And then you're going to start to see all the relationships around you form into something that's going to be magnificent. I would say yes and no. I'm not really advising them in that way when they're like, it's more information for me. And it's just watching their reactions because like myself and like my wife, there's several love languages that are really close to the top or they're equal, very close to being equal on primary love languages. Uh, For example, my wife likes gifts. She likes to serve. She likes service and she she likes spending time. And they're probably pretty equal in all that. And she'll light up at any one of those. So I just can't really pigeonhole them. And I don't want to pigeonhole those people thinking that that's their love language and that's what they should only react to because I think, and that's the whole idea of this, is that when you send it out, all five love languages, and you can see it, all five love languages coming back, that's when you become that love language linguist, that you can see it all and respond appropriately to all the those love languages. And I don't want to box people in, into a, a spot where they're only looking for one type of love language. We're already there. I mean, we're already at that spot right now. I'm trying to create the peripheral vision so that people can see it more abundantly and live more abundantly in that way. Yeah, no, that's a good way to have it. Because if we say, well, my love language is only gifts, you can only give me gifts, then if they're not receiving gifts, then they're not going to feel love, correct? That's right. My son had a problem rolling the die. And every time it come up to gifts, he said, I don't like that. I don't like giving on that day. I don't want to do it that day. Then he decided he's going to roll it again, came up gifts again. He rolled it again, came up gifts again. The fourth time he rolled it, oh, I got to do gifts today. Some people call this like a divining tool. And for my son, it's just been kind of hilarious just to watch him try to struggle through giving away or doing something that is really not his primary love language that he likes giving away. And we've got that as well. So it's just learning all those love languages. It stretches our, our imagination a little bit too. Yes. And I think it's very important for children to build on where they're weak. So if they're not really strong in an area of love, it's going to help them amplify it. And again, they don't have to choose that to be what they do for everybody. It's just that they can create an awareness of it. And I think that is important for especially a developing mind because they're like, okay, there's people like this who need this. Because if you grow up almost ignorant to it, which many people are, they might learn the basic emotions happiness, sadness, stuff like that, but they don't learn how to be that person to other people. And so we go on a path to a certain point where 
we become very singular and it's just like, what do I want? What do I need? And so when we can open that up to the world access saying, well, I'm not the only one here. What do the people around me need? I think that's going to cultivate better relationships and it's going to help cultivate better communication. And so that process, I think, is going to help people with having a more loving and positive mindset. And our conversation today was talking about the love languages, is talking about the work that you do, how your journey helped structure what you're doing today. And I think that's important for people to realize because they're going to resonate with you. I know many people are going to resonate with you and they're going to say, I have a similar story, I have a similar background, and I would like to begin to heal. As you did at 35, we can start so sooner if you are below that. Even if you're above it, there is never a time when you cannot, I think, as you said, bloom or flourish. So as we begin to wrap up, I would love to get some final words from you. And then please tell the audience where they can find you. Just on a final note, I'd like to talk to the people that maybe go to a yoga class. And we're going to just take a word from a yoga class. At the end of the very class, the instructor most likely will put their hands together and they'll bow their head and they say namaste. Now, namaste is a Sanskrit dialect in northern India, but the Hindu version of it or the Hindu definition of that would be the God in me sees the God in you, or the divine in me sees the divine in you. And rolling the die is exactly like that. We're watching for the good parts of people, watching for the divine in them, and then reacting that sometimes it's helpful for us to even even iterate or define it for them. I've talked to many people that I've seen qualities in them, and I've expressed that quality in them, and they said, I didn't even know I had that quality and until you said something about it. And then they, so they start working more to develop that quality, and it's just that they blossom as well on the good side. We need more blossoming on the good side. Definitely need a lot, of less, lot less rage, a lot more love. And how can people find you? They can find me on my website, rolloflove.com. And it's kind of a play on words. You R-O-L-L the die outside of you. But to change you inside, it's R-O-L-E. It changes you within R-O-L-E of love.com. Yeah, no, that's a very nice spin. I love the spins when it comes to businesses like that. Because as you know, Revan Concepts is literally never turned backwards. Revan is meaning that we can turn our limits around. And if you are having struggles with finding love, understanding love, reciprocating love, whatever that may be. If you have past traumas, I encourage you to check out the work that Paul has been doing and begin to ask questions, begin to infer, reach out to him and start the healing process because we don't have to live in a world of hate. We don't have to live in a world of turmoil or of trauma that has not been healed. We can begin the healing today. I want to thank you so much, Paul, for coming on, sharing your life story, a little bit of it, and then the work that you do helping people find love. All right, everyone. I would like to thank you so much for watching that interview with Paul Zoman and myself. As you can see, there is many aspects to love. Many of us, we grow up with some type of trauma. The trauma is going to be different for everyone. I have worked with the most entitled children in the world, maybe. And their sense of trauma is that they had to maybe wake up too early to go to school, okay? It could be that they had a perfect life, they got everything else they wanted. Maybe they couldn't pick a Ferrari and they were given a BMW, okay, right? To us, that doesn't seem like a big problem. Like, I don't mind a BMW. 
I don't mind not getting um, the car that I wanted because I still have a car that can get me to A to B. And heck, it might be a brand new one. I know there was a daughter of a very successful businesswoman. She wanted a Mercedes Benz and it was like a certain model. The mom was like, no, you're not responsible enough. I'm going to give you a Toyota Camry. The kid got a brand new Toyota Camry and she was upset at the mom. I don't think she talked to the mom for like a couple of weeks. And eventually she was like, whatever. That is an understanding of, okay, well, maybe your love language wasn't gifts or maybe you just start to think in a way of, I want what I want. In a sense, when we're looking at our relationships and when we're looking at our life, many people, they want what they want. They want a good time. They want a good moment. They want their partner to do what we think we want them to do. And if they don't do what we want them to do, then we start to say, you know what? Maybe you don't love me. Maybe you don't appreciate me. And so we move in a direction where it's like, I'm going to be by myself because I don't feel loved in this relationship. We don't communicate. And oftentimes when we are dealing with trauma, with unresolved problems in our life, maybe unrequainted love that has not been established for ourselves, we are going to act out in the sense of maybe I should run. We talked about it, avoiding. It's easier to avoid a situation that's uncomfortable. Maybe passively we can start to grow into it and it just becomes another Tuesday. But oftentimes we're not going to be focusing on the problem and saying, how can I solve it? Most people are going to run from their problems. Most people are going to put a Band-Aid. Most people are going to take a substance to feel better. Why do you think depression is running rampant? Why do you think so many doctors are giving out antidepressants? Because we're not looking at the true cause of feelings and emotions. We're not looking for the fix. We're just looking for a cover-up. So we're trying to hide away everything into a dark corner, but eventually that's going to topple over into our light, into our life. When we start to look at the power of what mindset can do, including with love, if you cannot do it with love and passion, you're going to do it with angst and anger. And so we do have to learn how to control ourselves, but then we also need to know how to give ourselves that trajectory of where we're going. Maybe when it comes to love, you want nothing to do with it. Maybe you're a playboy and you want to go have your fun. That's fine. Maybe you're someone who's a hopeless romantic and you're looking for the perfect situation. That's fine. There's an aspect. And especially when it comes to like when I do my relationship coaching with people, it's actually very simple. I ask, this is a little bit different than our love language conversation today, but this is just going into relationships because I think it's going to resonate with many people who are looking for the love aspect or trying to figure out what is love to them. When we're looking at what type of relationship we want. We have to see if the relationship is going to be in line with our true values. So we give ourselves about 10 values. I always say 10 is just a little bit easier. You can do 20 if you want to, but I say 10. Just pick 10 of your highest values that you would like to have in a person. And when you're going on dates, you can see if the person has those values. Maybe they want to start a family, family oriented value. Maybe they're very kind. Maybe they're religious, spiritual. So we go down those lists of values and what a person has or is willing to put into a relationship. But then you might find that someone is missing a value, but the value is actually not that big. And the value is that they love pets. Okay. Well, we know you love pets. You might have a cat, a dog, and things like that. But the value is that they don't love cats or dogs or whatever. They might not be against it, but 
They just don't have it. They can learn to love, oh, this dog is fun. This cat is fun. This is cool being a pet owner. But in the beginning, they might not have that. And in a sense, now relating it to the love language, that person might not have a love language of gift giving or of touch, but they learn as a relationship grows, we communicate with each other. Because when you decide to avoid and not communicate, there's going to be a lot of unresolved issues later on. That's why many people have to go to therapy later on in life, because they have so much unresolved trauma that they kept running away from. Eventually, it's going to rot away at you, and you have to do the work to dive through it. Think of it as an addict. You have a choice when it comes to getting rid of things you don't use anymore. You can throw it in the attic in the basement for another day. Or you can say, I'm going to give this away to goodwill. I'm going to throw it away in the trash, whatever it be. That's a process that we have to understand. What type of person are you? Are you a person who just hoards feelings away, who doesn't do the work to develop a mindset that's positive and loving and helping people, uplifting people, coming from a place of, I'm not going to look down on anybody unless I'm trying to help them back up. It's a powerful mindset to be. As Paul said in the interview, When we help people, the act of service, we get that too. We feel it too. We get something from it also. So I encourage everyone to look at what Paul is doing in his work, check out his website, social media stuff, and then begin to ask questions. Where can I make improvements in my love? Where can I make improvements in lifting the people around me that I care about? Because we do have to do the work that the people around us should want the best for us and we should want the best for them. So if we know what that person needs, then we can be better off. Because if my partner is not doing well and I say, well, she needs this. Well, guess what? I'm going to give it to her. And then she's going to be able to reciprocate that in some way to me that brings me up. Love can cultivate what the world needs so drastically right now. So learn how to change your mindset to be more loving. Learn how to uplift people and learn how to give yourself an opportunity to heal. My name is Michael Reardon. I'm a mindset coach. If you have any questions, you can email me coachinginsession at gmail.com and I'll see everyone on the next episode of Coaching In Session. Until then, everyone take care.